0: live from Tech Square in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for ATDC
1: Radio, powered by Business Radio X. Now here's your host.
2: Welcome to ATDC Radio. Stone Peyton Lee Cantor here with you this morning, broadcasting live From here at ATDC. Lee, this is going to be a marvelous way to kick off the day. Please join me in welcoming to the program Head of Global Cyber Investigations for DEVCON, Mr. Michael Anaya. Good morning, sir. Good morning, guys. Well, uh, Michael, before we get too far into things, tell us about DEVCON. How are you serving folks?
0: Uh, So, DEVCON is a cybersecurity company. We do a number of things. The principal component that we do, think of an antivirus solution but for the ad ecosystem, as well as we lend that security to all JavaScript that runs on a web page. So any JavaScript that you see on a web page, we essentially secure and lock down to make sure that no one gets infected with any type of malicious software.
2: And then, uh, so you primarily though for the ad ecosystem?
0: Yep, that's our initial entry point, but now we're expanding into all JavaScript. So uh, ads are a major component in javascript but then also you're looking at chatbots analytics everything
2: anything that uses java exactly so now um tell me about how this began like what what made you target the ad ecosystem
0: so essentially it was a need that needed to be met and so the founder and ceo maggie Louie, is the one who kind of came up with the idea her and josh summit who's the current cto they basically came together, realized that this sector was underserved, and they decided to enter it.
2: And then, uh, and your role in the in the company is more of the investigative. side That's of correct.
0: Things? So then, I basically head up whenever they identify something that they deem to be nefarious, and we think we can delve deeper into. I do that work, um, and I got this experience. The prior to joining DevCon, I was a supervisory special agent with the FBI out of the Atlanta field office. So I did that for, I worked for the FBI about 14 years, um, and I spent my my last four years here in Atlanta running a so squad. So now uh,
2: educate the listener about kind of the mindset of the person who is doing this nefarious behavior. It's, it's not like the kid in the basement anymore, mm-hmm. right?
0: Right. Well, it could be. <laughs> One of my subjects funny story you mentioned that uh, he was the most prolific and uh, the most brilliant hacker I've ever interacted with. He literally was a kid in his parents' basement. So your joke mm-hmm. was spot on. <laughs> he literally was that. Uh, but no, the, the mindset of the criminal, it, it, there's four components or characteristics that I've sort of observed um, during my time. I've done extensive amount of investigations in this arena, interrogations, interviews. So I was able to sort of see some patterns starting to emerge. So one key component is just justification. People will justify almost any action. I mean, you think about yourselves. Like I like to give the analogy of speeding. You know, speeding is against the law, but we all do it, and we all find ways to justify it. So justification is one component that I've witnessed. Um, another component is just the idea of being able to having that prolonged exposure to activity is another aspect. So if so you, they're around other people that are doing it, well, that's the fourth component oh, that's environment,
2: of
1: the
0: <laughs> <laughs> jumping head, uh, no, the prolonged exposure, meaning like let's go back to speeding. That's a good analogy. When you, when you probably think back when you were learning to drive at 16, you were terrified of the car that you are in, um, or 15, I guess per more likely, but as time progressed, you became more comfortable with it and you decided to break the law and speed. And then the first time you did it, you probably were scared and nervous. And then after the hundredth time of speeding, it's normal, right? You're just like, I don't even know why we need speed limits, right? They're right. Because
2: the risk kind of goes away because you've never been caught. Nobody's exactly. ever stopped you from exactly.
0: doing it. So that's the same mentality of the criminal mind they exhibited. Uh, the kid I was talking about, uh, when we entered his home, his parents' home, and found him in the basement, um, he was working on the third iteration of the piece of malware, uh, he'd been doing it for about four years, and he had no intention of stopping. So he never thought that, oh, you know, I'm going to stop. He never thought that was going to be something that he needed to do because he never got caught. Right. Um,
2: but they know it's wrong and
0: illegal. They they do to some degree, um, but it feel normal. It feels just kind of like, like where we, again, think about speeding. Everyone here knows it's wrong, but you do it, you justify your action. I need to get here because I'm running late. In his mind, when I chatted with him after the fact, um, I asked him, why did you pick the victim he picked? It was a wheel company. They were selling wheels online. And his justification was like, well, who needs wheels? Like, it's it's a frivolous business. It doesn't really matter. It wasn't as if I targeted a hospital or an organization that was doing good by society. right? So he ended in his mind kind of justified his action, right? Um, and again, that prolonged exposure kind of helped in that endeavor and then you know another element you mentioned was the environment so if you're surrounded by other people who are speeding and we're all joking about it casually then we feel more normal and we're like it's not a big deal right we're all speeding we're in speeds and we just continue to do it the final component is the lack of corrective action so in all these analogies or the speeding one if you Think about back when you were 16, you got your license, you were speeding, you know, no one caught you, but then all of a sudden you get pulled over and you get ticketed. That changes your behavior to some degree. And if that kept happening consistently, you probably would find yourself speeding less. So in the example I gave you with the, with the kid in the basement, if law enforcement intervened at an earlier state of that person's life he would have stopped sooner and wouldn't have progressed to levels that he was able to obtain. So it's
2: kind of that broken window kind of thinking in terms of crime where like in a neighborhood, if you start kind of enforcing the smaller things, then that'll prevent some of the larger things happening down the road.
0: I guess in a, in a a way that's kind of maybe the genesis of that idea. Um, It's similar to that. It's just simply in my mind, I think broken windows theory is sort of disproven now and people don't necessarily accept that thought process, but I'm referring to more just our own individual actions. If someone intervenes, and just think about everyone. Everyone listening can do this quietly in their own mind. You don't have to share with anyone. But think of the last time you did something wrong, and imagine someone caught you. In that moment, you'd be scared. You'd be like, "Oh my god, I can't believe someone caught me doing this." And there's a high probability you would stop. And especially when that person said, hey, "Stop doing this; otherwise, there'll be more consequences."
2: But the parent in this case didn't know, or no. they were
0: oblivious? They completely oblivious to what he was doing. Uh, completely oblivious. They had no idea. And it's, was he
2: doing things just to like kind of vandalize, or was he doing things where he was stealing money? Or
0: So in this instance, he wrote what is termed a, a botnet. Um, so it's a robotic network. Um, it was the first known peer-to-peer botnet. I don't want to get too granular with your, our listeners, but just know it was really complex and convoluted and very difficult to catch. And that's why he did it because he read, he didn't want to get caught. And he did it for the challenge. He wanted to push himself. There were other botnets around this time frame. They were what's termed um, command and control, so CNC. He needed to do that. He wanted to do something that no one has ever done before. So he created the first known peer-to-peer botnet. I uh, did it for the challenge. He what what he was able to do was to infect a machine. He captured all your keystrokes. He captured all your key piece of information when you entered a website he would program it's all automated It would program to capture all your credential information's sent it in an encrypted fashion to a server that he controlled and is a self propagating. So this piece of malware would continue to affect others and, others and others and others and others and others and continue to grow indefinitely. Um, and then he had all that rich data he captured and he wasn't enterprising cause he wasn't actually doing this to make money. He was just doing this to sort of do it if you can believe it. And, uh, Side note, when I presented this argument to a professor at University of Washington, he, he basically thought of an idiot. Uh, in, in other words, he thought that there wasn't someone who was in the parents' basement. He thought it was a sophisticated Russian group operating out of you know Russia. He's like, there's no way that someone at the... Like an individual could right, pulled he, this off. Exactly. He'd been researching this extensively. He's just, like, <laughs> there's no way. There's no way. This is ridiculous. There's no way that someone could have done this uh, in their parents' basement. Uh, but anyway, so just to kind of give you some perspective, the capabilities that this individual had were huge, but he didn't exercise them. What he was doing is he was capturing all data, literally just capturing it and just picking out pieces of it and buying small pieces of electronics. Um, he was, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Because he was a kid. He was a kid. He was a kid, right? <laughs> kids do. Uh, but it, it helped him because it, then we didn't, quote, throw the book at him. Right. right? And he wasn't sharing or propagating his um, malicious software with anyone else he wasn't describing uh, other what how percentage
2: to do it. of the the criminals are that kid and what percent are the kind of these nation states that this is their you know way they're making revenue
0: uh well that's an interesting question so i would answer answer a little differently the percentage of people like i describe whether a juvenile or a younger individual depending on the crime is a little bit higher cuz example they will go on like gamer forms and knock each other off. And that's how the hackers many times start in these arenas. Uh, but at they,
2: first, sometimes it's like a puzzle they're trying to figure out yep. and they're doing it just for the, Hey, I was the first one to do that. So it's like kind of a, a monument to themselves in their world. Exactly. Right? And the but other- then at some point the bad guys like, Hey, that's pretty cool. I can use it this way. And then all of a sudden now they're using it to, you know, really do some
0: damage. Exactly. Like there's those kids out there. That's where they learn it. Um, No one really does anything in terms of corrective behavior because um, no one really cares to do it. If you think that through in my analogy and my examples of lack of corrective action, there's no corrective action taking place. Then all of a sudden this person continues to elevate their game because of prolonged exposure. Now they're really hacking and they become a criminal. Mm-hmm. At that stage, it's very different. So you have criminal element and you have the nation state. So those are the two um, there are more criminal actors at large. Like individual or loose-knit groups. Or loose-knit or organized, depending on the organization itself. It, there, there's a huge array of different um, threat sets that are operating out there with different mindsets. But uh, you have the criminal component that's the largest. And then the smaller but potentially more potent is the nation-state. So nation-state are individuals who operate at the behest of an, a nation government. And the key governments that operate in this capacity, you're looking at Russia China, North Korea, and Iran. Uh, Those are the four, at least from the U.S. perspective, that they deem to be the most nefarious. Uh, From their vantage point, we are probably (laughs) the most nefarious (laughs) to them. It's all about perspective. right? Uh, But so from the U.S. point of view, those are the big four.
2: And then in those cases, those are people that this is their profession. They're going into a building with a briefcase and whiteboarding. Like, right, this is not... Right. games.
0: Exactly. Nation state is a sophisticated operation. Um, we don't really think of it in these terms. Um, but their big threat, like I joked about it, is is the U.S. And if you look at the capabilities of all nations, the U.S. is probably the most, uh, capable of facilitating any type of cyber attack just due to the amount of research and, um, expertise that the U.S. has at large. Um, so they, if you think about that, you have organizations like the NSA. So NSA specializes in signal intelligence. Um, and many times that translates to also they do offensive operations for the U.S. at large. These are individuals who are highly educated, highly trained, sitting in a room where they're whiteboarding things. They do that full-time, 24-7. nation state actors have those same individuals I'm doing the exact same thing.
2: Right. They're doing the opposite. Right. <laughs> it's like they they each have the opposite agenda. Exactly. So now, um, how does that kind of background inform your work, uh, where you are now?
0: So it helps me in terms of just understanding the mindset of the, of that criminal element. And, you know, I talked about blending of things, criminal element and nation state, nation state, their mindsets are very different, right? Because if we were all nation state actors, we would not be deemed what we're doing is illegal. It's our job. Right. It's a very different world. But, um, in terms of the criminal component, it helps me better understand the mindset, which helps me better identify when I see something at large, what could be nefarious versus errors or mistakes um, or whatnot.
2: So now at this level of knowledge that you have, is this something that you can see kind of at a glance like, okay, that's just a you know a mistake. That's not really a big problem. So let's fix this. But that's not a bad guy. Just figured out something.
0: That's correct. So, like an example, many times companies will, uh, false flags, and this happened many times when I was with the FBI, where a company initially said, Hey, we had a breach, we got this major issue. And you start looking at some of the tenants of what they describe, and there's indications that it could be a false positive. And so, uh, many times that it happens, it's just an error. Someone right, but made.
2: but how, you having that knowledge and that depth of knowledge and breadth of knowledge, you can kind of prevent your company from going down this rabbit hole. Yep. Right. Where that could be a lot of hours of work to solve something that really is exactly. just a minor thing. And
0: that, and that gets in. So we have some heated discussions internally about that. Yes. So I will be able to see whenever something surfaces, someone might say, this is something we needed to dig deeper into. But based on my background and experience, I would then articulate, no, for the fallen reasons we shouldn't. And that's where sometimes there is some discourse where we're discussing that, well, maybe we shouldn't. Because a lot of times what we're doing to threat intelligence. Is having those discussions. Where do we spend our time?
2: Right, and that's where you, the value you're bringing to the organization. That's correct. Is to help them prioritize
0: the threats, and then I do since it's a startup. I do a lot of other things. Right, you know, I'm sure. out the track. <laughs> <laughs> the glamorous startup, exactly, world, super right? super glamorous.
2: So now, um, how are you seeing the speed in which the bad guys are? They just getting better faster. Like, what's the kind of wh- what's the state of the union when it comes to the cybersecurity that you're seeing?
0: Uh, in terms of the threats, uh, constantly evolving. Um, and this is just very common for any criminal threat uh, or any threat. If you think about like even burglary, you know, if a burglar recognizes there's barriers to entry and they really want to get in your home, they'll try to find ways around it. Uh, threat actors that operate in a cyber community are the exact same. If they recognize that there's barriers to entry, they'll think about it. They'll find ways to sort of circumvent them. So that's what they're doing. So when we start developing and evolving our technology to prevent or protect our clients they then will adapt, and that's just a constant cat and mouse game.
2: And that, but it's like, like you mentioned, the burglary. Like as soon as those kind of uh, video cameras on the on the the doorbell started coming out, then the people were getting spotted and identified earlier on. So then they just start acclimating and then changing, modifying their behavior to take that into account.
0: Exactly. So let's look at the. I don't want to give people ideas, but if you're a criminal prior, to know this: there's probably not a ring camera on your back door, right? So, I mean, there is a way to circumvent it. Right. Um, if you have motion sensors, there's probably not window sensors. Motion sensors are on your second floor. So there's ways around whatever security protocol you put in play.
2: Right, but then you have to, the bad guys going to determine if it's worth their time or exactly. just find the low-hanging fruit somewhere exactly. else.
0: That's exactly right. So that's – the because you, you play my analogy out. You're like, okay, well, then you can never stop them. But what you hit home is what, what really happens. It's a cost-benefit analysis. They look at things like people in the business community – Look at you know whether or not to do business or not, right? Do the cost benefit analysis. That's exactly what they do. If your home is in a home of neighborhoods and everyone has a as a you know a security camera installed and a sign that says they're protected by some company, but your house doesn't, your house will definitely be targeted.
2: <laughs> right, like because that's again the bad guy. This is their job. Yeah, this is what they're thinking about.
0: I I uh, I have uh, do a lot of presentations, and so one of the presentations I like to do is like show people four homes and I asked them to pick which home they would break into. So it's kind of a fun activity. <laughs> Everyone loves doing it. Unless yeah. you've been Unless victimized. That
2: One of their homes is their home. Exactly. And they yeah. don't like exactly. it as much. My-
0: <laughs> They're like, sir, that is my home. Can you please not talk about it? So I walk them through this. And each time I basically, I have typically a larger group of people. And at the end, I ask them, show of hands, which one would target house one, two, three, or four. And we talk about all of them their vulnerabilities that each present and opportunities. And they always, every single time, the whole audience always picks different targets. There's never been a moment where everyone's picked only really? one or not picked it's one. It's never been unanimous. No, because everyone has their own opinion. And that really goes back to a threat actor. So the threat actor thinks in the same capacity. You might think your company, like you might sell like cold cut meats. Like, well, no one's gonna come after I sell cold cut meats. Who right. cares about that? Uh, well, unfortunately, someone does.
2: Right there's a guy. I hate Coca-Cola. I, mean, <laughs> I can't believe that they're still in business. Exactly.
0: You know? <laughs> well, it's funny you think about that. analogy or the example I gave you earlier with the kid in the basement—he targeted a company that sold rims or wheels. Like right. they never thought that <laughs> right. maybe some kid someday targeted <laughs> them because they sold mad. rims. Right, right. Exactly. But anyway, so ultimately, everyone always picks one of those houses, and that really just goes to show that no matter how secure you are, people will find some value and some opportunity. So you def- definitely need to ensure there's a base or modicum level of protection that you're exhibiting.
2: Now in that house analogy, is there one that for you it's like oh the obvious one is number two? Like that's
0: a, Well, no, at the uh, end of the at the end I always tell them the Intel, which is key in this whole game. I say, Well, what if I told you house number two, uh, the owner was gone for a month in Europe, they forgot to turn on their alarm system, and they have two million dollars to lose diamonds. <laughs> right. And you have a diamond guy. Like that's different, it's intel. Right. And all of a sudden everyone's like, well, hold on, I would have I would have picked. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna change right. my vote. Right. And so in essence, that is the same thing that deals in the cybersecurity arena. It's it's threat intelligence. So whenever the threat starts recognizing there's some vulnerabilities in play, and a lot of this is facilitated on a dark net, sharing information, sharing of opportunities. Like I will give you an example uh, if you're a victim of ransomware, which is essentially a piece of malicious software that locks various files or important items that you have to pay the person to unlock. If you've been victimized by ransomware and you're not changing your computer architecture and bringing in new individuals to help you secure your network, that's a really bad indicator. Because what happens is once you've been victimized, there's indication that people share that data with others. They talk. They talk. (laughs) Right. Right. And so it's like breaking into someone's home saying, hey, they don't have their alarm system on. Right. Well, then other people then will start doing the exact same thing. Right. So people talk.
2: And um, is there anything that uh, people or companies can do to kind of protect themselves? Or are there some things that they're missing out on that to you is obvious?
0: Yeah, so I, I break it down to five. I wrote an article about this. I break it down to five steps that all organizations, companies, private sector, public sector, doesn't no matter who you are, if you're an organization, you should do these five things. One is to build a team. And that's a team of cybersecurity experts. Now, the team of your startup, like, you know, you have seven people. The team is potentially the CEO and maybe an outside consultant and maybe their chief technology officer. That's it, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to be that formalized, but basically think about it. Think about what vulnerabilities are we putting in play? Uh, What can take us offline? If you're a fledgling organization and all of a sudden you get hit with ransomware, that could be it for you and you're done. So it's something to think about. Build a team. The next one is empower your team. Uh, Many times in organizations, they'll build a team, but they don't necessarily trust the people they selected. And so when the team comes in with recommendations, they're like, oh, go back. Give me something that's cheaper. And that's a discredit to that team, but also recognize that as an owner or CEO or executive or leader, you need to build the team, but you also need to empower them to do their job. Uh, The third item there is layer security. So in the home analogy, there's a high probability that what you'll do if you have a home is you'll have a Nest camera. So that's one piece of security. It's one layer. You're going to have potentially a security service. That's another layer. You're going to probably educate your family. Don't answer the door when I'm not home to your children. That's education. It's creating awareness. as a no layer. So if you think that through, you're going to layer your security in your home. You need to do the same thing for your organization. You need to have a layered approach so that if the threat actor passes level one, they don't pass level two or level three or et cetera. Uh, The the fourth one is create awareness. So that's basically kind of go back to home is educating your family, um, having people in your company train them accordingly, make sure they know, hey, don't click on things you're not supposed to click on, um, allowing that power, empowering that security team to train your company and train your employees to make them smarter. Uh, whenever I talk to, since I'm a former FBI agent, when I talk to current agents or anyone who works in the cybersecurity arena, I always ask them kind of what's their biggest pain point. Many times it just comes back to the exact same thing as people. Um, the biggest threat that most companies face are the people within because they're the ones who receive an email and they're the ones who click on it. And when they click on those emails, all of a sudden that patient list of software is now exposed to their network. So it's educating. So it's not
2: necessarily them doing something Not in a fair, Like on purpose. Exactly. To sabotage it just exactly. inadvertently. Or just, inadvertently. Time and now and they're getting again. pretty good at these emails. They right? are. It's not, it's not like back in the
0: day. Exactly. Back, back when we were kids. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, but exactly. They're, they're, they're sophisticated. I even fall prey to them. I look at this email like that. Was that? Let me click on that. Oh, crap. Uh, but so yes, they're getting a lot better. Um, but ultimately it's creating that awareness. And then the fifth thing I wish, uh, recommend organizations do is to share intel. Uh, so back to the home analogy, if you, if you think about that, think of all of us living in a home. Um, if we're part of a neighborhood watch that's going to help prevent any type of, of individual coming into our home breaking in, because we're sharing information. Mm-hmm. I'll share with you that hey, this guy looks suspicious, and you know you might share with me, hey, well, there's this lady who walks her dog every time at nine, and I know she doesn't live in our neighborhood. And we start talking. And then we start seeing suspicious behavior, not only do we share with each other, but we'll then share with law enforcement. You know We'll call, like we'll say we live in Atlanta, Atlanta PD, hey, we have the suspicious behavior, here are the patterns. That gives them some information, so they can then send a patrol car, or build a potential, because there might be other break ins where that same fact pattern is at play that helps them further investigation. So, in the cyber arena, I encourage organizations to share amongst one another, but don't forget to share with law enforcement because ultimately, at the end of the day, no matter what we do to make our house more secure, that threat actor is still out there. So, we can't arrest them, but law enforcement can. So, law enforcement needs to be brought in into cyber matters. And so, you need to share with law enforcement hey, here's some indicators of compromise, here are things that we're seeing. And then they can then intervene and take care of that threat. So those are the five steps.
2: So now, uh, for your work at DevCon, what's the pain that a DevCon customer is the DevCon customers having where they go? We should call DevCon.
0: So basically, if you're looking at a uh, pain point, there is just all that JavaScript that's running on your web page. So
2: if you have a lot of JavaScript,
0: yeah, if you have if any JavaScript, any any, any JavaScript. <laughs> uh, so back up a little bit, educate the listeners a little. JavaScript essentially is designed to run on your machine. So, in other words, as opposed to a server, so, so it's, when,
2: it's local on your device.
0: Yeah. So, like, if let's say we all go to um, a company, we'll say New York Times, and we're seeing a bunch of content, and there's JavaScript executing. That JavaScript is designed to execute on our browser. It's running on our machine. It's designed that way to basically save processing from that server that's hosting that the whole hosting that content. So, when it's running on our machine. There's a vulnerability there because it's outside the purview of that company. So New York Times doesn't necessarily know what's happening. That JavaScript initially is a bit of code that rests on New York Times website. There's a high probability that New York Times isn't monitoring that at all. So there's a active threat set that's termed Magecart. There are others out there, but this is one's still more popular. What they do is they will attack that vulnerability. They'll repurpose that JavaScript to do something that it wasn't designed to do, such as maybe collect PII information, so personally identifiable information like social security number. Imagine going to a website and all of a sudden the chatbot pops up and it's asking you, "Hey, in order to verify your identity, please enter your data bar social security number." And you know, if you're on New York Times and you're a subscriber, you're like, "Okay, that, okay, that makes I sense." They want
2: th- me to do that
0: exactly. And then you do that, but in reality, that wasn't New York Times. It was this threat set, and, and that's where we block. Th-
2: th- and that's through these ad networks a lot of the time?
0: It potentially, but this is just all JavaScript. So it doesn't have to be an ad network. So you're looking now, like, the uh, example, I gave was a chatbot. So that's completely outside the ad network. That's simply just JavaScript running. And there's legitimate chatbot companies out there that run them. Um,
2: but like in an ad ad network, like uh, any company could be, you know, use an ad network, and all of a sudden the ad network isn't really part of the company. It's just kind of laying on top of their website. Exactly. So, and so the ad is specific to me. And could, if you went to the same website, it would be specific to you. It wouldn't be the same ad. But so that might use JavaScript. And then once it does that, then they can locally get into my computer.
0: Potentially. So the way it works in the ad space, it doesn't typically work that way by the threat actors. What they'll typically do is redirect you to a site. You'll get like some sort of pop-up and then it was something that tells you like, hey, check this out, and right when you hit click, it'll redirect you to a site that they control, and that's where you're gonna experience what's called a payload, or the actual piece of malicious software. Mm -hmm. Um, What you're describing, the ad network, that's how it works. A lot of people don't quite understand that, but it's called programmatic advertising, and it is just that when New York Times doesn't control, unless it's a direct ad placement, but if they're using programmatic advertising, which a vast majority of websites use, they have no optics into what ad you're seeing because what you're saying is exactly correct. I'm going to see a different ad because of my preferences than my wife is going to see. Even though we go to the exact same website, those ads are all different and they're customized to the end user. So you're absolutely right. And that right.
2: requires local access in order to know the end user.
0: Exactly. So they're they're reading my cookies. All these sites are dropping things on our browser. And you know now the privacy is becoming more paramount I think more and more people have become more aware of these practices, but for the most part, it's, under, it's completely under the rug. No one knows it. No one knows this is happening. Because, I mean, for the vast majority of our experiences, it doesn't really affect it.
2: Now, for you, are you going out and doing a lot of speaking and education?
0: So I am, yes. So, like, example, I have a six-part speaking series here with ATDC. I'm having uh, my next session is going to be tomorrow at 2, 2 to 3. It's going to be talking talk about the dark net. Um it's going to be actually very fascinating. So if anyone is interested in tanning, I highly recommend mm-hmm. it. Uh, my interaction, my presentation is just to share with listeners. I'm very interactive. Um, they're very back and forth. It's not a, all right, slide 400. We're going to look at this, right. right? So it's going to be engaging. I always involve the audience. Um, I joke that you should, if you have, if you're drinking a hot beverage like right now, I wouldn't necessarily bring that to uh, the presentation because I'd make a lot of jokes. So <laughs> you're probably going <laughs> to spit it up and throw it everywhere. <laughs> But no, but it's, it's. I always try to educate and entertain. And so uh, that's what I'll be doing. So that will be my my second speaking gig. And then I have uh, four more thereafter, about every two weeks <laughs> here at ATDC. Here at ATDC.
2: Good stuff. And if somebody wants to connect with you or DevCon, what's the coordinates?
0: So basically, you want to connect with DevCon, it's devcondetech.com. Uh, the best way to connect with me is through LinkedIn. If you just type in my name, or even Google me, Michael F. D. And I, I'm... and
2: that's like the regular internet or the dark net I'll yeah. be able to find you. Don't Google me in the dark net. <laughs> 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 Uh
0: But no, I've have, I have some, I've some major SEO. Uh, you got to spell my name right. It's so funny because when I was with the FBI, I had no idea what SEO was. I was <laughs> right. like, I don't know, that's stupid. Uh, but anyway, so no, yeah, that's how you find us. I'm also on Twitter, but I don't really use Twitter. I'm just mostly on LinkedIn. Good
2: stuff. Well, thank you so much for sharing
0: your story. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys.
2: Hey, man, stay with us. We're going to visit with one more guest, okay? All right. Sounds good. All right. Next up on ATDC Radio, Lee, we have with us Assistant Director, Technology, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship with Invest Atlanta,
1: Miss Amy Love. How are you? Good morning. So what did you learn in that last segment? Did did we scare you? I feel like much more secure now. And like I know what I need to do to be more secure. <laughs> Let's put it that way.
0: That's awesome. So
2: uh, tell us about your work at Invest Atlanta. What's going on over there?
1: Well, Invest Atlanta is essentially investing in the city of Atlanta's people uh, through a variety of programs, including housing and community redevelopment, as well as uh, business incentives. So I'm on the business incentives economic development team and represent, I, I like to call myself a concierge for the tech businesses and Growth startups in Atlanta. So
2: now, what? Um, explain that in a little more detail. So, like, say I have a tech company here at ATDC, and I'm ready to maybe graduate and go out into the world of Atlanta. I can get with you, and you can help me locate in a better spot. Or there's some tax advantages. Like, what's the, uh, exactly. the reason I'd be interacting with you?
1: We can we can help companies at any stage of their growth. So, they don't have to just graduate from a program for us to be interested in supporting essentially their growth and um, hopefully the fact that they will stick around and do business in our city. So, uh, we are a quasi government entity and uh, we are, uh, our board is chaired by the mayor of Atlanta. And we have city council representatives on our board as well as appointed folks from the community, business community, and otherwise. And um, they're sort of the oversight of these investments in the city. Uh, we are um, we always have an eye on how we can be more inclusive and make sure that we have equitable, focus on how resources are distributed throughout the city of Atlanta. And um, soon we'll be launching what we are calling our economic mobility strategy in the spring. And this is just an effort for us to take a look at how um, the the inputs and support from the city are impacting um, economic prosperity and growth for individuals.
2: So now walk me through how this would work. So I have a tech company and then – so I'm going to call you up and say, hey, th- I just want to educate you. This what I'm doing.
1: Well, I guess in a lot of ways I'm collecting threat intelligence, <laughs> just trying to. Um, so what are, the, what, nice. what, what are the threats uh, that our startup community and tech, our growth tech companies um, are experiencing? And how can the city, by way of Invest Atlanta and my role, how can we help get barriers out of the way for that growth? And we do have a toolkit. It's, um, of resources that, that I can tell you about. Um, but really, I think it's important to listen to what those threats are to the companies and, you know, the challenges they're facing and how we can help get barriers out of the way. For example, um, I know that in order to be a, m- a member here at ATDC, you have to ha- be registered with the city of Atlanta with a business license. So how can we make that process? a little more customer friendly. How can we take away the pain of having to register your business just so that you can become part of this community here at ATDC? Um, so we look, we, we work with the city on, on that and in fact have a program to waive the the fee for technology startups. Um, I think there's a lot more opportunity there and I'm always listening for ideas because in in essence I have to do customer discovery just as much as any company.
2: And in your case, customer discovery is just identifying these tech firms, these emerging tech right. firms. Right, and, and at-
1: talking with them about um, you know, finding out what their needs are and um, how they think that Invest Atlanta can be most effective. A lot of um, growing technology companies here are looking at um, real estate within the city as they grow. What are the um, resources available for them to find out where they can move as they expand? Uh, where there are flexible rental arrangements or where the square footage per per square foot fee is reasonable for a a growing company. They're looking for tax credits and we do take a look at the state opportunity zones, which offer tax credits uh, for employees per employee for um, growing companies. So that also impacts where a company might want to expand or locate uh, we we have, um, as an example, we worked with an ATDC company that had $300,000 pending on where that company was located in the city. And so we were able to be a resource to them.
2: And this is one of those things they may not know what they don't know unless they have a conversation with somebody and invest in land. There could be opportunity for them, hey, if you move two blocks here, you know, this could open right. up and uh, that's an opportunity zone. And then there's Mm -hmm. some tax benefits from moving there rather than where you're thinking.
1: Correct. And I mean, in in essence, we're always looking for the opportunity zones. And and I don't mean that in the literal way, but Atlanta is a growing city and um, we have tech hubs in Buckhead and Midtown um, and we have a burgeoning hub in downtown Atlanta. We have activity in South side of Atlanta and there, as I'm sure many of the listeners read in The Atlanta Journal-Constitution over the weekend, Atlanta is a hub for black tech. And we have a lot of talented African-American coders, engineers, and tech talent that is going to feed that. And leaders here in this community who are interested in really elevating Atlanta in that space and making sure that everyone can be successful.
2: Now, how do you work – you mentioned the uh, the – the black tech hub that was mentioned in that article. What about any other underserved uh, groups out there? Like, are you doing work like uh, the refugee community in Clarkston? I don't know if that's still city of Atlanta or that's Clarkston. I'm not aware
1: of that level of, of engagement. I can say that um, we always have our eye on touching every community within the city. And, and um, we, we get out into the community as an organization in fact, uh, I mentioned the economic mobility strategy, and we are hosting public meetings where our staff will be there. We want to listen to the community and understand what they're struggling with and how our strategy can impact what they are experiencing and their success and growth and prosperity in, in the city. Um, from, from my perspective, from the technology innovation entrepreneurship side, um, I I am connecting in with as many partners as as possible here in Atlanta, including ATDC, to uh, make sure that we are paying attention to entrepreneurs from all backgrounds. And I can tell you that I get calls a lot from entrepreneurs interested in moving to Atlanta. So I just spoke yesterday with a FinTech startup that's interested in moving here from another state. And so we can facilitate relationship building um, access to resources and really be the face of the city for these companies that are interested in locating in Atlanta. And they don't have to be startups. So we work a lot with established businesses and larger, as you know, larger tech companies. And when those projects come to us, we typically um, partner with groups like the Metro Atlanta Chamber and the Georgia Department of Economic Development on how we approach um, incentives packages and the discussion around recruiting.
2: Now, um, how do you find the uh, level of collaboration here in Atlanta?
1: Well, I'll just tell you what this startup told me yesterday. Um, He – this startup founder told me that he um, had not experienced such a welcoming community and that he felt everyone was willing to meet with him even at the last minute. Um, He was excited once he landed in the city. He had been reading about the fintech, the growth of fintech industry here. And once he landed here, he was surprised at the versatility in all the neighborhoods. And so I think that – And I can say in my first couple of months in this role at Invest Atlanta that partnerships are key. And I have had open doors across the board with groups like Atlanta Tech Village, ATDC, EI Squared here at Georgia Tech, um, the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Um, We work labs. We've tried to connect in as much as possible to where the talent is hanging out. And um, I appreciate that our partners are giving us access to that so that we can assist as many technology companies as possible.
2: So now what's your vision? Like you said, you're kind of new to the role, but where do you think this could be in a few years?
1: I think that we, as an organization, have a real opportunity in the economic mobility space with technology. How can technology and startup Thinking uh, and innovative thinking impact the challenges that we see in our city. And a lot of people are already working on this, um, social and civic impact accelerators and programs. Um, but I think they're with our talented students across the board, with all of the universities here and the um, innovation centers that these corporations are are propping up. Um, So the support from that corporate level, the university system, as well as um, all the brains around the the talent and the startup community, I think that we'll see a convergence of solutions. And um, I think that uh, I'd also like to see a new hub of activity in a new part of the city so that we take this tech innovation hub concept and just bring it south. Mm -hmm. Um, We have – seen Midtown change over the right. years. So I think it can happen in other places and maybe it looks differently. Maybe it's um, tech plus civic innovation. Maybe it's uh, really more of a focus on a certain industry, but um, I, I think that that's possible. And I think with redevelopment in downtown Atlanta, a lot of uh, new projects coming on board and um uh, entrepreneurs willing to locate there and build these hubs. I think that we will see that. Right. I mean, downtown
2: had a, was a center of gravity of the city and then it kind of migrated north to midtown. But I think you're right that there is this kind of revitalization with a lot of the effort of Georgia state university, really creating kind of more reasons to go down there. Correct. So there is a lot of opportunity. We
1: have an innovation fellow from Georgia state. Um, We, run a program called students to startups that Mm -hmm. connects talented students and city of Atlanta universities to startup opportunities in the summer. And we subsidize those internships Um, and the startups in part subsidize those internships, but the talent in these universities is incredible. And we, um, we were excited to see with our students to startups program that we had applicants from every single school, including SCAD um, and the majority from Clark Atlanta, Georgia Tech, and um, Georgia State.
2: Yeah, it's a, a lot of opportunity, and like you said, there's no shortage of people coming here. They're coming from right. all over. Yeah, the city just keeps expanding, expanding. So what do you need more of? How can we help you?
1: Well, I appreciate this opportunity to be here this morning because while the, the name Invest Atlanta may be known in the technology community, um, what we actually have to offer, I think, may be Not so known. So um, I think this is a great assistance and um, because my job is to serve the technology businesses in the city and we want to make sure they stay here and they grow here and that we can uh, enable that.
2: Right. Keep the brains here. We're going to, you know, kind of nurture them throughout the beginning of their lives. Let's keep them here as long as we can. That's right. And opportunity will do that. So we appreciate you doing what you're doing Uh, in your role now. Um, Tell us a little bit about your backstory. How did what got you here?
1: I'm a South Carolinian by birth, and um, made a conscious choice to move to Atlanta to work for ATDC. As a matter of fact, uh, several years ago, and had an incredible experience uh, working for ATDC as the statewide program manager. I evangelized ATDC across the state of Georgia in mid-sized communities and tried to identify technology businesses that could use the support of the curriculum and resources here and, um, also hired part-time coaches in those communities to do the coaching and the teaching. So, and we grew the program in, in a short time. I had an incredible team and I know that Ben Andrews is doing a great job to kind of keep furthering that program, right, keep the momentum going.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, um, one of the, I think challenges in your, uh, well, a lot of groups in Atlanta, there's a lot of people doing kind of similar type work, like uh, you're trying to be the bridge and everybody's friend, like kind of to collect all of this <laughs> resources, you no, know? no threat actors, <laughs> right? <or laughs> um, because it seems like there's a lot of groups doing similar work in this space. And it gets confusing from the entrepreneur's standpoint of right, which, you know, where should I ride here?
1: Well, I think you're probably right. I think it's a good sign that there's a lot of activity. I think that's just um, the market speaking. Uh, I think that the activity that will be successful will survive and grow and show impact. Um, I There are great organizations like Startup Atlanta. Uh, Invest Atlanta is a, is a founding sponsor of that organization, and I'm on the board, and I've just thoroughly enjoyed working with that group. They are truly the ecosystem glue and keep an eye on uh, what's happening within the ecosystem for startups. Um, and I think the chamber plays a really important role with their innovation efforts and um, particularly the corporate innovation uh, opportunities. So really, my what I think my... And, and maybe your listeners can provide feedback to me later about what they think the most important role is for for me. But I think that what I'm what I've noticed is is that the, the deeper knowledge I have of, of the ecosystem and what each of these what each group is working on and their impact and their goals, the better I can direct resources. Um, you might know about ATDC, but you might, you might not know that they have the Educate program that um, takes very early idea entrepreneurs through a process that ultimately will give them a business plan and a financial model. Um, Maybe you don't know exactly know that ATV has um, a special program for six figure um, startups that have already got annual recurring revenue. So I think the more in-depth knowledge that startup Atlanta can have and that invest Atlanta through my role can have, the more we can direct people to the right resources.
2: Right. And that's uh, because the entrepreneur, you know, they're heads down just trying to survive. A lot of times they don't know who's who, what's what, and there could be a great resource for them. They just didn't even know. And they could be literally next door. I mean, we've seen that happen over and over again. It's just overwhelming from an entrepreneur standpoint. Yes,
1: there are some efforts um, in the city of Atlanta to create ecosystem maps. And Startup Atlanta actually does have uh, a guide that um, can be downloaded from their website. There are other efforts around building um, mapping around companies and other resources beyond talent. like
2: Like you mentioned, FinTech, there's a cluster there. Healthcare IT, there's a cluster you know, marketing automation. There's a cluster. Like, there's all these things happening there. Just from an entrepreneur, I mean, we talk to entrepreneurs in all kinds of industries, so we see this firsthand. And and a lot of the times, their heads down. They don't know what's what. They're just trying to get a product out the door. So to know that there's resources, a lot of times we're telling them, "Hey, have you checked out this? Have do you know Invest Atlanta can help you in there, or ATDC has a lot of resources?" They don't know. So it's, well, thank
1: it's, you for being an ambassador. <laughs> well,
2: I, I mean we just see it. It's, it's hard to be an entrepreneur. It is and, hard.
1: It's, and it's, I think it's made to be glamorous these days. Oh, um, well, it's a
2: lifestyle for some people, you know, it's not, yeah. a,
1: <laughs> and there are different types of entrepreneurs and I think invest Atlanta serves all of them. We have small business uh, focus. We have someone who's focused on creative industries, which includes gaming and film and a large tech component there. Um, I think, you know, we, we work with early stage and we work with growth stage and I'm I'm largely focused on the growth stage tech mm-hmm. companies, but I will help any entrepreneur who comes my way.
2: Good stuff. So now mm-hmm. if somebody wants to learn more and get a hold of you or the resources of Invest Atlanta, what are the coordinates?
1: InvestAtlanta and um also can find me on LinkedIn, Amy Love.
2: All right. Well, thank you so much for your work. It's important work and uh, we appreciate you coming and sharing your story. I enjoyed it. Thank All you. Right. Alright, this is Lee Cantor for Stone Pit, and We will see you all next time on ATDC Radio.